Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Jonah. Uh, before we get to the show, uh, I wanted to let you know that the Dispatch is now offering you a chance to experience a full membership for the next 30 days risk-free. There's a lot of information chaos out there, and with the Biden administration on the move, Democrats in charge on the Hill, and Republicans going through a wholesale realignment, the Dispatch is here to help you make sense of what's really important and what's worth your time. During this 30-day trial, you'll have access to member-only editions of all our Dispatch newsletters, including my own, David's, Sarah's, um, and of course, uh, so much more. Plus, you'll be able to join our members-only Dispatch Live virtual gatherings, which are always a hoot, even when I'm sober, which is rare. It's our sincere hope that you find the Dispatch membership to be valuable and something worth sticking with after the 30-day trial. If you don't, you can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this offer, go to thedispatch.com slash free30. That's thedispatch.com forward slash F-R-E-E and the number 30. Thedispatch.com slash free30. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to get all the free stuff on the site. And if you like some of that, maybe you'll get um, uh, you'll get the sweet, sweet taste and hunger for the stuff that is for members only and sign up, which would be awesome. Uh, if everybody who listened to this podcast became a subscriber tomorrow, uh, we could do great and glorious things. So, um, uh, and I'll come back to that in a little bit because there's something I wanted to correct from, uh, um, a previous podcast, but anyway, we should get to our guest. Today's guest is, uh, is, is racing towards the gold jacket. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure he's quite there yet, but, uh, this gets him, um, third timer. Is it, you're, this, you're third timer. So like, you know, sadly Zeno's arrow says that you'll never actually reach your destination, That's but, right. <laughs> um, uh, it's, uh, our friend Andy Smerick. He is from these days. He's from the Manhattan Institute and, um, uh, he, has a rich and full one might even say of his resume it was effulgent um and he's done many things and uh he concentrates a lot on education stuff which is where we're going to start he recently wrote a piece for us about what the conversation about teachers unions misses and then i've warned him in advance i'm in a i'm in a kind of overtired hyper-stressed mood and i feel like using him as my uh as my sounding board, the way some poor schmo trapped on a long transatlantic flight sitting next to someone who's off his meds feels trapped. Uh, so uh, I apologize for that in advance. I don't know where this conversation is going to go, but I, I, I have, I have, I have lots. Uh, I feel like I am thinking X percent of the time these days and X equals 100. So with that all said, we'll see where this whole thing goes. Andy, welcome back to The Remnant. 
It is an honor and pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to the impromptu, unplanned, wherever the conversation goes, because there's lots of interesting stuff happening out there. There's vaccines, there's the new right, there's um, Josh Hawley raising tons of money. There's there's everything, that, lots of stuff to chat about. Interesting in a sort of Chinese curse kind of way, but sure. Yeah, interesting. Um, we have, <laughs> we got to adapt. Uh, we uh before actually before we get into all of that uh let let's pick up something that we were talking about in the green room uh as it were um you know one of the things about the remnant it's sort of like the practice room in the color of money it's where all the really interesting and exciting stuff happens and where a lot of money changes hands too if you know what i'm saying but uh <laughs> we were talking about how there are different variations of wonks and this is something i talked about with Tevi Troy uh a couple weeks ago uh, on here um, one of the things that I am coming around on is the idea that it's, uh, I've made peace with the fact that I am a generalist, um, because, and a popularizer, which I used to have some disdain for, but, uh, having gotten to know, so anyway, the way we got this conversation started was, uh, I came in while Andy was lecturing my minions <laughs> at, at, at the remnant about something very, very wonky. And, um, I, uh, something about state funding budget stuff. And it started this conversation about how people outside of Washington think I'm wonky. And then I tried to explain to them that like the right tail of the distribution of wonkiness has an incredible range to it. And so you have, it's sort of like, like if you're, if you're worth a billion dollars, you're obviously in the 1%, um, you know, well into the 1%, you know? But like, if you have, if you have $1 billion, you're a billionaire, Jeff Bezos or, or uh, what's it, Elon Musk, I think has one of those guys has like $177 billion. That's a huge difference in distribution there. The same thing applies to all sorts of things, um, at the extreme end of the right tail of distribution. And so including wonkiness, there are people in Washington who not only think I don't know jack all about public policy, but think Andy doesn't know jack all about public policy. And he knows 10 times more than I do about like nitty gritty public policy stuff. Anyway, so that's where we started. And I figured we should talk about that for a second. Um, uh, distribution of wonkiness. Right, because uh, it takes all different types to make this policy apparatus work. And so on the very far right end of the wonkiness distribution, you have people who spend all of their time knowing everything about a particular provision of a tax credit or of a federal, uh, I don't know, competitive grant program or a lawyer who knows absolutely everything about one provision related to bankruptcy law. And they will know everything about it and they build their life around it. And thank goodness some of those folks are out there because when you or I or someone else needs to be dangerous and know a little bit about that, we know who to go to. Often those folks don't spend very much time on podcasts or writing about what they do. They have jobs that don't have much public facing. But then as you move to the left of them, you have people who maybe work inside of government who need to know a lot about a lot of subjects, but not a hyper a lot about subjects. And then you have more generalist types. And then on the far left side of this distribution, you have this super generalist or talking point types who might just show up on, uh, you know, a radio show. They can be hyperbolic in their language, and they know a thin veneer of things enough to say something pithy, but they don't really know all that much about a specific topic. Um, and I should say, you're not giving yourself enough credit. You know way more than um, you're letting on, and 
also some of these big, deep, like you can write books. A lot of people can only write 600 word things, but it does take these different types to make the whole thing work. And the best things happen is when everybody is focused on their domain and their level of expertise. Things get out of line when people who don't know very much about a topic are the ones driving the conversations about it or when you mean uh, like now. Uh, there, well, there is something to be said that like in this area of like tumult on the, both the left and the right, you have advocates driving things who feel deeply about a subject, but might not know all that much about it. And that's when it's kind of required for people who know a lot about the subject to try to pump the brakes. And that can be, those can be nasty fights. Right, so I, I have a couple points on this one. Uh, I think the people that you're describing on the way left end of the distribution um, dominate. Let me put it this way. I'll be fair to it. Some people who seem like they're there are only there because they think that's how they're supposed to be when they're on TV. TV dumbs people down. And like, it's, uh, this is a 20 year phenomenon. We'll have a really interesting conversation with somebody before they go on TV about the, the nuances and complexities of an issue. And then they go on TV and they make the issue sound like this incredibly dumb, simplified black versus white thing. Then there are actually other people who only think in dumb, simplified black versus white terms. Uh, they don't remember the old commercials. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Some some of these people are not morons, but they play them on TV. And then the other people are authentic morons where you don't need the disclaimer. And um, but you said something there that I think it, it reminded me of something Jim Garrity, uh, former colleague, friend of the remnant, um, uh, said a while back on Twitter about how a big part of the problem with a lot of the conservative movement is there are an enormous number of people who know how to articulate the 10th step in a 10 point argument and think they've made the argument and they don't know how to like, if you ask them, why do you think that? you know, or what about X very quickly, you're just basically backing them into a corner and they don't, cause they don't know the answers. They just know the conclusions, right? They've sort of skipped to the end. And I think that that's, that's a big part of the problem with the, the pundification of, or the TV pundification of, of most political discourse these days. And I, I think it is one of the reasons why podcasts are popular is because they don't, they don't really allow for a lot of that. Um, the way, um, TV requires it. You know what I mean? Uh, I think you're exactly right. And part of this is just media in general, that I suspect that more people today, especially younger people, spend way more time reading tweets and 500 word newsletters um, than they do reading books. And when you don't spend a whole lot of time reading books and seeing like the the academic literature that leads up to a point, you can have a tendency to think that this issue is as simple as like the punchline, the 10th point, as opposed to all the stuff that led up to it. I mean, what you just said, like reminded me of that great line, and I hope I don't butcher this, about Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I think it was Barone who referred to him as, was it the best politician among uh, politician among thinkers since Jefferson and the best thinker among politicians since Lincoln, that there is something to be said for the people who are able to think deeply, but also do the work of politics. 
And um, so know an, an issue inside and out, but then also go on a cable news show and be able to whittle it down into you know, a sentence or two. And uh, your interview with Crenshaw, I think he kind of made this point that he knows that he has to be serious about policy. But he also didn't he say he jumped out of a, an airplane for a, a political commercial. So he knows that there is this you got to be involved in day to day politics. But you also have to take seriously the work that you're doing. And I do see that there are a whole lot of people who are doing the the politics of it and not the hard work of the serious public leadership that's necessary. Yeah, I, I, I want to come back to wonkiness, but let me ask you a question. Just you're, and I, I told you I was just going to just use you as a foil. So you're, you're, you're truth in advertising. But um, the Crenshaw interview, um, you know, I like Dan Crenshaw. Uh, I really hope he has a full recovery with his eye issue, which, you know, is terrifying. He almost canceled that podcast. Like he was like, yeah, I, I don't know. I got this thing with my eye. Do we really, you know, I almost canceled. And I was like, you know, we talked about it for a while and he must've gone to the doctor right afterwards. Cause it's sounds scary. Anyway, um, got a lot of blowback for doing that podcast because there are a bunch of people really? who I understandably I, I get that they see him as having crossed a line and in his Trumpiness. And I get that. I do think, and again, I've known the guy and I've said this for years that one of the reasons why I try not to become friends with politicians is part of my job is, you know, my attitude towards politicians needs to be somewhat like research scientists towards their lab animals. And if you, <laughs> you, you don't, you don't befriend the bunny. Right? right. Because then you can't stick a needle in it. Um, it's much easier if you call him test subject 47 three B than Mr. Whiskers. And, um, <laughs> but every now and then I become friendly with some politicians and then I, you know, and, and uh, as I wrote in my book, uh, friendship is, it can be corrupting in the sense that you bend your standards based on friend, on kinship and friendship in the ways that you don't with strangers and all the rest. Anyway, it's a long lead up to the fact that one thing I didn't do in that, that I, I, f- that people pointed out to me and I feel that they were right to is I didn't ask him about why he signed on to the lawsuit about the election and the electors stuff, the Paxton stuff. And, um, and I, and it's so like, you've been making a case for a long time about how to, you've been making arguments about how the right should be dealing with Trump and, and, and what's happening to the party where, where do you think people or I or whoever, I mean, take it anywhere you want, should be navigating these things about, you know, redemption? Should there be demands for accountability where people apologize for taking what I think, you know, I think the Ken Paxton lawsuit and all that stuff was profoundly wrong and dangerous to the Republic and indefensible, except on narrow, cynical political lines. And I wish I had asked, you know, Dan about that, but water under the bridge. Um, but in general, I think Dan Crenshaw is also a decent human being who's trying to navigate this stuff as best that he can. And he's a smart, serious guy. And he, you know, he made huge sacrifices for his country. So, I mean, like people should have a little generosity in their hearts, too. How do you adjudicate all of this stuff? Yeah, I'm not a guy who is uh, going to ever try to exact revenge on people, partially for my own humility and partially just because of my faith. Like we're all fallen. We all make mistakes, um, uh, myself included. And it could turn out that I think someone is wrong for five reasons. And then 10 years later, I think they were only wrong for three of those reasons. And I don't know what the two others are going to be. 
Uh, but that doesn't mean that I just give everybody a pass. My view is that I assess people based on their judgment as much as the things that they say, like the things that they're advocating for. And so uh, all of the people who behaved over the past four or five years in ways that I think are honorable and decent and courageous, that's going to lead me to think that they are honorable, decent and courageous in the years to come. And there may be someone who was behaved badly over the next over the past five years who leads to a position of prominence. And I will forever look at that person uh, with my head cocked saying, hmm, I wonder if I can trust that person. That person did some things that I think uh, were not prudent, that did not show judiciousness. So no one is beyond the pale. No one is beyond redemption. But behavior has consequences in my views. And frankly, people are going to view me that way for not getting on the Trump train. So be it. Um, I hope they don't write me off completely. But I mean, whether it's uh, Nikki Haley or Crenshaw or Sass or Romney, I'm going to assess their future behavior knowing what they did in the past for the good or for the ill. So as you may be aware, um, I come from a slightly different faith tradition than you do, which involves more smiting and wrath. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so I don't, I don't rule out uh, revenge um, in the, you know, in the categorically, let's say, um, I, one of the things I've learned over the years is that, um, getting into sort of vendettas where you think about how you're going to get back at this person and that person is just a waste of time. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm a, I am a big believer in a sort of a non mystical version of karma that you, if, if if you take shortcuts your whole life, if you do, if you act without character, you're going to accrue a large reservoir of ill will. And there's going to come a testing point when you're going to need to rely on the charity and grace of others. And no one's going to offer it to you because you've done nothing to deserve it. And, um, and so it's, 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 it's not a Buddhist notion of it. It is just, it's basically game theory to a certain extent. Also, I just believe, in right and wrong and all that kind of stuff. But like, um, I don't feel, you know, and I do a different thing than you do, but like, I don't feel like with Matt Gates, like I should be erring on the side of, well, he can redeem himself. Um, or with Marjorie Taylor green, um, I don't feel like, well, we all make mistakes and therefore, you know, I shouldn't say that she should be, um, banned and exiled from polite society. I think she should be banned and exiled from polite society. Um, so I think it's one of these things where you can make judgment calls, but as a general proposition, I think I'm on the same page as you. Yeah. And, uh, I, I would amend it to make sure that uh, people knew that I agree with your final point, which is, um, although I wouldn't, uh, probably send anyone to Elba quite yet. Um, There are this small fringe group of people who have behaved so badly. And I think we should have known they were behaving badly and not waited for like a scandal to come out to say, oh, that person was behaving badly. Like you can tell if someone is um, going sideways on issues. So those are the people who I hope they do a turnaround and I hope they redeem themselves. But it would be hard for me to for some of the worst actors over the past five years to say, yeah, that's going to be a great leader for our country going forward. But but people can change. Um, Let me offer some hope. Yeah, no, like, I mean, like I'm, I, you know, I have a column in the LA times today. It'll be up at the dispatch tomorrow about how Ron DeSantis isn't like 
Trump or Matt Gates. And I've been very critical of Ron DeSantis. I thought how he ran for governor in the primaries was grotesque. And I've been, it's been very hard for me to forgive him for that. And I haven't forgiven him for that, but it's shrinking in, in, you know, we all judge people through a portfolio of things. And as he does other stuff, the share of the portfolio that is consumed by that stuff just shrinks. And, you know, he handled the pandemic well. He's governed pretty well. He's, um, uh, you know, I, I wish I could, I, I could do without some of the owning the lib stuff, but I'll take it. It's part of the nature of politics these days. And so I'm coming around on the guy. I don't have some of the hero worship that some people have for him these days, but I, I think he's not Matt Gates and he's not Donald Trump. He's a much more serious person and should be judged accordingly. And the left gets themselves into huge trouble getting confused over that and thinking they can just do plug and play. Oh, look, there's Florida man crap um, about him because he doesn't fit the mold that they want him to. Yeah. It, can I just add very briefly that like the Winston Churchill example is something that I often come back to. There are lots of folks on the right who just lionize Churchill. He could do no wrong. The truth of the matter is through the first chunk of his career, he made one huge mistake after another. He was hot-headed. He was intemperate. He made bad decisions when he was um, he was a, a, a chancellor of the Exchequer, I think Home Secretary, did some bad things on India, certainly the Dardanelles. You could have judged him in 1935, 1936, 1937 as being a person just who has unreliable judgment. But then over a long period of time, he learned a whole lot more and he made the right decisions in the 30s. And he ended up being one of the great leaders of the 20th centuries. So there are people who can show bad judgment and turn things around. And like you said, the portfolio of experiences we have with them grows and we can start to assess them differently. But a big part of that story is he went into the wilderness and he changed his mind and he grew a whole bunch just like FDR did. Um, so that period of, of growth is necessary. Um, of course there are examples of people having the opposite trajectory and the, 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 the best one who comes to mind or the most illustrative one that comes to mind is Rudy Giuliani who, you know, if, I mean, What's the line that if Napoleon had been killed on his way into Russia, he would be remembered as one of the greatest heroes of world history and the great liberator and all that. And um, uh, or maybe it was earlier than Russia. Anyway, but you get the point. If Giuliani had been hit by a bus 15 years ago, he would be remembered as one of the most sensible, best hands-on politicians, you know, mayors in American history. And you can't really, you can't unwind that part of it because that happened and it's in the past. But the share of his reputational portfolio that's taken up by that stuff has shrunk remarkably because he's been such a clown and, 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 and so pernicious about, you know, uh, democratic norms and, and, and all of this other stuff. But so it works both ways, I guess. It, well, it does. And this is going to really age us. I mean, I was 26 when September 11th happened. So that was still very formative for me. And so like Rudy Giuliani as that leader on September 11th and the months afterward, like that is still a picture in my mind. Do you realize that there are college students right now who weren't even born when September 11th happened? So they have no recollection of that Rudy Giuliani and that era. And frankly, the good things that he did for crime um, and other things in the city prior to September 11th. So his 20 years afterward, I think, are going to shape the narrative, the history of his career in a way that I never would have guessed when 
he was um, taking such a leadership role on September 12th and beyond. Yeah, I mean, this is, I brought it up a bunch of times on here. Um, I can't remember his name and I apologize, but the, the biographer of Joseph Schumpeter um, makes this great point about one of the things that Schumpeter introduced into economics was understanding that, that, that the normal charts and graph thing is a snapshot. And in reality, you have to look at things over time. And so like monopolies aren't per, monopoly in part of Schumpeter's argument is monopolies invite their own downfall by the nature of being monopolies. And, and anyway, it's somewhere he uses this analogy. He says, look, if you took a snapshot of the Titanic as it was leaving port, <laughs> it would tell you an enormous amount about the Titanic. <laughs> you know, I mean, like the size, the shape, you know, the design, all these kinds of things. It wouldn't tell you the full story, though, you know, because the most important part we had yet to come. And and that's true of, of folks like Giuliani. I mean, Giuliani in, in 2002, you know, was America's mayor. He could do no wrong. He was Hero. Saturday Night Live. And that's all he threw all that away. Um, and he admits it. I mean, he said in an interview, um, you know, I have friends who come up to me and say, what about your legacy? And his response was to that. I say F that. And he didn't just say the letter F. Let's talk about, uh, the mass atrification of America's school children because of school closures and your counterintuitive pushback on why teachers unions aren't solely to blame, right? You're not, you're not letting them off the hook. You're just saying that there are other factors involved. Right. Uh, and this is one of those cases where I collected a whole bunch of uh, public opinion survey data and it led me in a direction that I didn't necessarily want to go. Um, but, you know, the data is what the data is or the data are what the data are. Uh, and people should know, like, I've spent, I don't know, 20 years doing education policy and often at uh, at odds with unions, fighting them about school choice and accountability and I hope I always did so honorably, but uh, we were head to head on a lot of things. Um, but in this case, I think they may have gotten a worse rap than they should have. So in, in short, this piece that you guys were nice enough to publish for me, I collected all the survey data I could find. And there were lots of them beginning with last year, right after the um, the pandemic hit and school shutdowns occurred. And my whole piece is based around like the general narrative that so many schools have been closed down and it's the union's fault. Well, it turns out that parents, when you surveyed them at the beginning and then even at the end of last calendar year and even right now, um, a majority, even at the beginning, 70, 75 percent of families did not want their kids to go back to full time in-person schooling. Um, moms in particular were nervous about it. So then you look at like what school districts were doing and most parents continuously said well more than 70 percent that they like the decisions that their districts and schools were making then there's all the survey data asking if they blame unions for keeping schools closed and parents continuously said no as a matter of fact they were saying that uh unions should have a say in what's going on with school openings and and closures and then the final part of this is that it turns out that at the um, beginning of this school year, about a third of school districts, um, a third of kids could be in in-person learning. About half of districts were opening up, mostly in rural or ex-urban areas. Um, in red areas, schools were open. Uh, in areas that were urban or that had been hit hard by COVID or where the African-American population was higher, schools were more likely to be closed. Um, 
because survey data kept showing us that Republicans were more likely to want schools to be open and Black families were more worried about the safety of opening schools. And so the point of the entire article is the narrative of it's all the union's fault actually misses that unions were tracking public opinion and school districts were tracking public opinion far better than I think we had been led to believe. So in um, Idaho or Nebraska, where places got opened up much more quickly, it was because parents wanted them open up much more quickly. And in a bunch of places where parents to this day are still wary of opening schools, schools are less likely to be open. So the headline here is public opinion, parental opinion was a much bigger player uh, in this in this drama than I think the narrative over the last year has been telling us. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And I, and I, I want to talk about the cultural changes that COVID is, is racking up, but let's stay on the teachers for two seconds. I mean, I, I think it's an important point. It's why we ran the piece. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. It's interesting. It's, it's backed up at the same time. Like, We've spent 25 years, 50 years being told that education's everything. The children are everything. What about the children, as Mrs. Flanders would say? Um, and uh, leave no child behind, not even the ones who pick their nose and are whining all the time. And so that's all fine, right? I mean, that's the, that's the nature of society. And, 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 and there's, there's merit to that position. You know, children are the future. Um, some days we're going to something we're going to change that law. But no, uh, the the but the thing is if you look at firemen, if you look at nurses, if you look at at ambulance drivers, if you look at supermarket cashiers or sanitation workers, um those guys have unions. Those guys um are part of public opinion as much as everybody else is. And yet there was zero conversation about why those people should be able to just stay home from work and, um, um, or very, very little of it. You know, I mean, there's some people with comorbidities and that kind of thing, you know, it's totally understandable, but basically there are a lot of people who are, don't have particularly high status jobs. And there are a couple of those jobs that are high status, but you know, as a general rule, there are a lot of people who have lower status jobs who behaved unbelievably heroically in this country, partly out of necessity because they didn't have the financial capital not to go to work if their job was open. But nonetheless, they behaved incredibly nobly. I just don't think you can make that case. I mean, again, with obvious exceptions based on region and individuals and all the rest, but as, as at the macro level, as represented by people like Randy Weingarten, the head of what AFT? AFT. You, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, the AFT. Not yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think that you can make the same case about teachers. I mean, teachers, and you still can't make the same case about teachers. At least like in Northern Virginia or in LA, where they're they're talking about in California that they won't go back until they have they have uh, subsidized daycare for their kids. Um. What what explains the fact that teachers get away with this, you know, it's sort of like, um, uh, you know, John Stewart's old routine where, you know, whenever he was asked to account for his positions, he would say, look, I'm just a comedian. 
Um, these people get to say that they're these heroes who are the most, have the most important and vital jobs in the world until they don't want to show up for work. And then all of a sudden, um, they shouldn't have to because they're special and different. I mean, what is it about the culture of America or the culture of the media or the culture of teachers that explains why they're the outlier in those kinds of conversations? Uh, let me say a couple of things about that. And I do take your basic point on this. One is that we have to recognize how many hundreds of thousands and maybe into the millions of teachers did go back into the classroom beginning even in the fall of this school year. Um, it often was not in the big urbans that we're talking about. And what I want to put in brackets is it's important that Randy Weingarten, the, uh, he emphasized the AFT because the AFT is the union that represents most of the big urban school systems as opposed to the NEA, which represents most of the rest of the country, the smaller school districts, often the suburban ones. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But there are so many school districts that were open and so many teachers who happily went back because they they love their kids so much. They're part of the community. They had to figure out how to make this work, and they did make it work. As a matter of fact, there was just a survey released, I think, by EdChoice within the past, I don't know, day or two that showed that, believe it or not, it's like 68% of teachers now think that they either somewhat or strongly agree that they're comfortable going back to full-time in-person teaching. And that number is higher than the percentage of parents who are comfortable, which is like 56 or 58%. So I just want people to know that what big school system unions the picture they're painting of teachers is different than the experience of a lot of the country and a lot of teachers. So the second part of this is, okay, why would it be that these urban union leaders are in such a heated battle with their management? Well, because going back decades, it is the big urban school systems that have been often badly managed, that have treated their teachers poorly. And so there is just generations worth of antagonism and lack of trust between management and labor in these places, where if a union leader says, I don't trust that this big district that has 200 schools and often lies to us about asbestos or lead pipes, I don't trust that they're going to do all of the things that they claim on keeping a desk six feet apart. They have reason for saying that. There's a history behind that. And they do site visits and they realize the district was fibbing to them. So I'm not trying to give the unions total cover on this, but there is something about the relationship between these unions are meant to protect the health and safety of their members. And in these big districts, there are decades worth of examples where these unions had to do that because the districts, the management was so bad. Um, so you just, you're just a rank apologist for public sector unions. That's, that's what I'm taking from here. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay. So look, I, 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 I get, I get why Randy Weingarten is Randy Weingarten. You know, I get why the, 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 the scorpion is the scorpion. I get why, you know, a equals a, I mean, we can go Randy in on this and go wherever you want, but I, I get, I get, I get, I get the role that she has been assigned. Um, I could do without her talking about, uh, Jews being members of the ownership class, but we can talk about that later if you like. Um, uh, um, but that doesn't, it still doesn't explain how mainstream media, just the, the, the general political conversation, is it that because Democrats rely on teachers unions disproportionately, um, you know, for organizational and financial support, 
I get so that might explain why Democrats aren't beating up on them. But even the Republicans haven't really made it that much of an issue. I'm just trying to understand the politics of it. And and the media hasn't made it that much of an issue. What you know, you would think given the givens and the fact that, you know, sanitation workers need to have their kids in school too, so they can do their jobs. Um, it just seems like they just there was something about there's something about teachers in our culture that gives them a pass on these kinds of conversations that nobody else gets. Does that am I wrong about that? I guess I don't see it that way as much because so many teachers did go back and so many of these teachers care so much about their schools and about their kids. And we got to some, there's this danger of giving unions too much credit for the power that they have. And what I've often found is that unions are at their strongest when they have the winds of public opinion at their back. Very seldom do you see unions with massive wins over time when public opinion is against them. The reason why a number of years ago, in the past five years, they made all of these gains in a bunch of states on teacher pay is because public opinion was behind them. The reason why teachers aren't allowed to strike in a lot of states is because public opinion actually says they don't want teachers to be able to strike. There are only a handful of states where they can actually do that in some of these big cities. So uh, I don't really think that teachers get this pass as much. But in these cities, like in New York City, for example, when the schools opened and they said, finally, we're going to be open if parents want to have in-person education, they can get it. Half of families in New York City chose not to go back to in-person learning. And we've seen this in lots of other districts that once it is made available, it's not as though the Berlin Wall has come down and there's this massive flood of people to the other side political scientists would call this revealed preferences. So this is another example of parents being wary of the safety of it or deciding that they don't want in-person learning as much as you would think. And the unions, so the unions were not fighting against public opinion as much as we thought. And these are examples where there wasn't a revolution among families because families were pretty happy with what was going on. That's the kind of interesting story here. And to your last point about reporters, because there are so few local and regional papers anymore. There's a tendency, not just in education, but in all domains of policy, for the reporters in the papers that are left, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Chicago, and LA, they report on the things that are in their backyards. And we can get a picture that the world looks like it does. What's the famous New Yorker cartoon where um, people in New York think everything is Sixth Avenue and the rest of the, like the hinterlands? If there had been more news reports saying, actually, 50% of districts are wide open right now, it's these outlier big urbans that aren't open, that would have had a very much, that would have had an influence on the conversation. But instead, we had the New York Times, Washington Post, talking about what's happening in the DC suburbs or New York City or Chicago or LA, and not what was happening in Florida or Nebraska or Idaho or Oklahoma, where things were open pretty quickly. Um, that's a fair point. That's a good point. Um... So on the cultural side of this, so, um, you know, I was very hard on people who were trying to turn masks into these major culture war symbols and symbols of oppression. And, you know, um, I mean, it's, seriously, there was a woman who was like the op-ed editor or something at the Washington Times who early, you know, around this time last year was talking about how masks amounted to 
voluntary surrender to the Chinese Communist Party um, because we are a freedom loving people and we don't wear masks just because the government, I mean, all this nonsense, right? And I was in a, and all the videos of people at Costco or Walmart wearing masks, you know, freaking out that masks were mandatory. And it now feels, if you look at this polling, I don't have it in front of me, but like the, the people least likely, um, the people who don't think the pandemic is a big deal, um, who aren't going to get the shot, aren't going to get the vaccination, um, are also the most likely to say that they're not, their life won't be changed much when all of this is over because they haven't changed their life already or, you know, something to that effect. That makes some sense to me. There is this thing on the left, though. I mean, left is, we'll use left and right, even though I understand it's not exactly a perfect thing here. There's this thing on the, the, the sort of Fauci side of the culture war where, you know, like Joy Reid tweeted the other day that um, she got both her shots. She's still not going to large events. She's still not going to, you know, she's still going to wear her mask. She's still going to do all this stuff because she's still scared. And, um, and it's, it's amazing. You get, there are people out there who seem like, like I, I, just as we saw on, on social media, these videos of people throwing absolutely asinine, immature fits because Walmart asked them to wear a mask when they were inside we're going to start seeing sort of, uh, you know, Whole Foods or Lululemon shoppers losing their minds because the masks aren't required. And I, I just, it feels like the cultural hangover of this thing is going to be really pernicious. And it, it affects sort of all these other conversations because there are people that just kind of at some level, don't want the pandemic to be over. I mean, there was a guy with social anxiety disorder, which it seems to me is a special case. But the fact that the Washington Post ran this op-ed from the guy saying he's 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 bummed the pandemic is ending is indicative of a sort of more mainstream, less special case mindset um, that's out there. And it it's going to be a mess, I think. What do you think about this? Well, I do think that there is something in human nature that, you know, we're all different. And there are people on the left side of the distribution who are unusually um, risk tolerant, who um, are willing to, you know, head into the storm with their chin up and shoulders back and, you know, consequences be damned. Um, and then there are people who are just more anxious, more nervous about things. And there's a bunch of psychology on this. We're hardwired in different ways. Uh, and I think that those kinds of things certainly manifest themselves in surveys about our willingness to go to war, our willingness to deal with the pandemic. And I just think that this mask and vaccine thing has just put into stark relief or escalated these kinds of differences among people. Um, yes, this is going to last for quite some time. My hope is that the vaccine herd immunity thing that we're getting close to at this point is going to reduce a bunch of this. So I think, aren't we somewhere between 100 and 150 million um, shots being taken right now in America? Like we're, we're getting, there. I don't think it's that high, but we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even if people aren't fully immune, like the number of shots has been spiking. So if there are people like Joy Reid or others who, even if they're in an environment with 100% of people who are vaccine, vaccinated, themselves included, if they still want to wear a mask, I think we're going to see that. I don't know if it lasts six months, a year, five years. So be it. Um, but I think that those yeah, numbers are just going to decrease. But I don't think that's the problem. And I, I mean, I agree with you entirely on the analysis part, but like the problem is when people want to wear masks, you know, I mean, like 
uh, Asian tourists and people with, you know, compromised immune systems, you see them, you know, wearing masks for years. I, I couldn't give a rat's ass if you wear a mask. My point is there are going to be people who long after the science is, you know, says it's okay. Um, and I put science in scare quotes because there's like this annoying tendency of people to claim that they are avatars of science until science says something that they don't want science to say. And, you know, and I just think it's all BS and Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, nonsense. But um, um, uh, my point is, is that there are going to be people who are going to want other people to wear masks still. They're going to want, they're going to be people who are going to want institutions to still socially distance and keep up their, their plexiglass, you know, barriers and all of these kinds of things because they've been, uh, you know, imprinted. I don't want to say scarred, but they've been imprinted with this idea that this is, a better way to live a life. And I, I think we're going to see a lot of that, but maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, we might. Um, I think they will probably have a limited ability to influence policy or the, uh, actually the behaviors of companies. So I don't think that um, if, you know, 90% of shoppers of Whole Foods want to not wear masks anymore, I don't think the small uh, vocal minority is going to change that. And I think the courts, especially the U.S. Supreme Court, has had just about enough of pandemic law at this point. They are not going to put up with very many regulations any longer. So this will linger for some time. But I think that the vaccines, because public opinion has been shifting not just on schools, but on other things, like how safe do you feel getting together with friends and family? How safe do you feel traveling? Those numbers are getting consistently better, and they have been for about two or three months. And once we hit the summer, I think we're going to hit critical mass, three quarters of people, 80% of people who feel like life can go back to normal. And then you're going to have this fringe element on the side, and they'll they'll still be loud, but I, I just don't think they're going to have very much cachet. All right, so let's switch gears here. Um, one of the other things that we have in common, other aside from being terrific dancers, is <laughs> that um, we are both, um, uh, you know, fairly close students of things going on on the right. And um, so I want to, I want to throw something by you. Um, uh, there's a, you know, there's a movement with sometimes different, but largely overlapping players um, uh, that stretches from like folks talking about how conservatism needs to get rid of originalism. You know, there was this big piece that they did over in either American mind or, or Claremont website or whatever that Hadley Arcus and Josh Hammer did about getting rid of all that stuff. And it very much tracks the Adrian Vermeule stuff and that we, we need results oriented jurisprudence. And then, on the um, economics side, there are a bunch of people calling for one version or another of industrial policy. Um, Josh, Josh Hawley is just turning up the crazy every day and with all sorts of things. And so, frankly, is, uh, J.D. Vance, I think, is saying some really bizarre things. Um, and But I want to make a point, like, I don't mind, in fact, part of my critique of a lot of the pro-Trump universe going back the last five years, and we've talked about this, is um, I don't mind conservatives questioning existing orthodoxy, you know, or liberal orthodoxy or fusionist orthodoxy. A lot of those reformicon guys who are good friends of mine were trying to do that, and the big wigs of right-wing media kept trying to shut them down, you know, and saying that, no, this is questioning the Church of Reagan and all that kind of stuff. And my point has been countless times on this podcast, 
maybe if we had listened to Yuval and Ramesh and Michael Strain and, you know, and people like you and guys at R Street or, I mean, or, or Manhattan Institute, you know, um, Raihan, you know, and Ross with their book and you can go down a long list of people. Maybe if we listened to those people earlier, we would have had a policy program that would have attracted the white, the, the sort of the, the, the white working class part of the Trump coalition earlier around good policies rather than around divisive culture war nonsense. So I, I, I don't mind questioning this stuff. What I do mind is people saying, well, it's two things. One is the recency bias problem I have. Whenever I see, I see people constantly arguing that woke capital is this brand new thing under the sun. When in fact, if you go back and you read Irving Kristol, Milton Friedman to the 60s and 70s, complaints about the nature of big business being and its its social program and and all that kind of stuff has been a constant complaint on the right if you are willing to pay attention this is not a new thing much like a lot of this sort of uh you know uh post-liberal integralism misses the fact that you know bozell senior and william f buckley had these fights in the 60s and 70s with triumph magazine and all that right so there's a lot of this you know uh you know, young whippersnapper kind of people or opportunistic kind of people who are coming to this argument late in the game and thinking it's a fresh and new argument. And that bothers me. But then the second thing that bothers me is it's one thing to say conservatives need to be creative and entrepreneurial or revisit their, you know, their policy preferences over the last few years to take into account change circumstances. That's something I've argued is perfectly legitimate all for a long time. It's another thing to say that they're conservatives just because you're, that they're conservative policy positions just because you don't want to give up your brand. And, and the example I'll use is Marco Rubio. Rubio wrote this op-ed for USA Today, taking the side of the union against Amazon. And if you read the op-ed, it's got a lot of Rubio weasel escape clauses. You know, like if the politics go one way, he can always point to some passage saying, well, look, that's not really what I said, or look what else I said in that, and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of weasel word stuff in it. But if you take a step back, his position is we, he's siding with labor, not because of what labor is actually asking for, but because Amazon is woke and we need to punish woke corporations, which is basically the J.D. Vance, not the J.D. Vance, the Josh Hawley position. Now, there are good arguments from serious-minded liberals going back 100 years about why private sector labor unions are good. I agree with some of those arguments. I disagree with others. You know, it depends, you know, but that is, if there is anything that is sort of a standard liberal position is, you know, siding with organized labor over private businesses, that's got to be in the top five or 10 over the last hundred years. And there is this idea that unites the jurisprudence people that unites the, the, the industrial policy people, um, that, uh, is that because our motives are different, that somehow means when we embrace liberal policies, we won't get the same problems that liberal policies have yielded that we've pointed to our entire careers. Like, you want to make the case that siding with labor unions against Amazon makes sense on the merits? Make that case. But don't tell me that's like the conservative case when 
you provide no conservative arguments for it other than like smash mouth culture war politics and whatnot. And the thing that bothers me is like, I'm the one who gets called a liberal all of the time for holding on to these ideas I had five years ago, you know, and the people who are embracing ideas that were objectively considered liberal or leftist five years ago are now claiming to be the authentic conservatives because they're moving left. And it, it vexes me. Yes. Um, Amen. So anyway, where do, where do you come down on all this stuff? Okay. So let me always begin with the positive stuff, um, because I think that's the best way to try to engage some of our interlocutors here in something productive. I'm going to beat that out of you one of these days. <laughs> Eventually you'll, you'll win. Okay. So I think that many of us on the right can be legitimately accused of getting intellectually lazy um, over the past generation and generating too few new ideas. I don't go as far as like the dead consensus language or uh, what do they call it, zombie Reaganism. But there is um, a fair criticism that too much of the right just played the cut taxes card or the deregulation card when conditions were changing and we needed other kinds of policies. So I begin there like taking some blame. And yeah, had the Reformicon stuff been taken more seriously, maybe we have got we would have gotten out of that problem, but that didn't happen. So there is this new generation, and I'm going to sound like a boomer, like full disclosure, I'm Generation X, but I'm going to sound like an old guy here. But there's this new generation of people who, I used to be one of them, who is, they're angry at the system, they think they know best, and they want to beat up on people like you and me who they think weren't courageous enough or didn't accomplish enough. And this is a circle of life, the next generation coming and trying to displace the people who've been there. I used to be on the other side and now I'm the, the victim of this attack. So they are coming up with these new sets of ideas that I think at minimum, the best of them are interesting. There's some things that Orrin Cass has done that has, that they make me think I don't always agree with them, but uh, I'm happy they're doing them. The Josh Hammer stuff, um, he still has a big article coming out, I think, in the Harvard uh, Journal of Policy and Law that I haven't read yet that I think is going to get into his theories of um, jurisprudence a bit more. I look forward to reading that. But if it makes the case that we need to think differently about originalism, I'm willing to consider that because my brand of originalism is like a um, deference to elected branches originalism. There are people like um, Randy Barnett whose version of originalism is much more aligned with like a liberty first. So they would be much more willing to strike down laws. I'm of the mind. Um, all things being equal, the tie goes to the legislature. Uh, if someone wants to make an argument that, no, we need to read something more into originalism um, from the Declaration of Independence or the preamble of the Constitution, I'm highly skeptical, but I'm willing to listen to all of that. So I'm happy that they are interjecting into this conversation, new ideas and new energy. Um, now, the downside, I think sometimes they can be intemperate and they're losing potential allies. And I think to your point, sometimes this new right discussion seems to be unmoored from what I call conservative governing principles. Like you and I, well, I don't speak for you, but I believe that we as conservatives believe in federalism for a reason. We believe in spontaneous order for a reason. We believe in localism and originalism for a reason. We believe in capitalism for a reason. So we begin to orient our policy proposals with those kinds of things in mind. So we are able to make it, to use your language earlier, 
arguments one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, before we get to argument number 10. And so when people now come on the scene and say, I'm a conservative and we need to do child allowances, free money for families from the federal government if they have kids. My my take on that when people say, Andy, you're not a conservative because you don't believe on that is like, whoa, whoa, wait, let me give you the 5,000 word piece on explaining why my position is conservative and yours is not. Uh, and that's where I think we need to actually hammer in, get in on these debates, because I think there are lots of things flying under the cover of new conservatism now that, to your point, um, it doesn't always uh, stand up to a tough interrogation. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's a certain kind of underpants known problem, right? It's like step one, get conservatives to get rid of uh, textualism or originalism. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, total victory, right? <laughs> um, there's this. Um, I mean, I remember it in the early days when when uh, Rusty Reno was, you know, really out there and attacking me. I think just sort of ridiculously and indefensibly. Um, I, I will, I will hold the, the receipts on this for a long time. I mean, I, we talked earlier about not wanting revenge and I don't want revenge. I don't know the guy. I don't really care about the guy, but when a prominent Trump defender says that I represent the total decadence of our political culture, um, I, I remember it and I will remember it for a long time. And, and I will, uh, take statements like that, you know, here I am defending Western civilization, free markets, limited government, the constitution. And, uh, he thinks I'm, I'm decadent and corrupt while he's defending Donald Trump and, and the new deal. So there's that. But I remember at the beginning of all that kind of stuff, there were a bunch of these people who just seemed convinced that there was this reserve army of sort of hyper committed ultramontane or, or ultramontane adjacent uh, uh, traditionalists that if only the, the shackles of, of classical liberalism in our system were lifted, they would be able to, uh, repaint the landscape of our society along their lines. And I just, there's just like friggin' like, you and what army? I mean, I just, I, I, this is, and, and so many of these arguments work from this assumption that they have the political clout in this culture and our politics right now, that if they could just get the mechanisms changed, that they would be able to deliver us into the sunny uplands of history. When in fact, things would be so much worse if, if conservatives gave up being bound by textualism and originalism, um, or being, bound by the idea that economic policymakers can't outthink the market. If we give up all that and just think with the right sort of like throw away Hayek and pick up Dewey. And now if we just have the, the right application of our will and our intellect and we get enough data, um, uh, we can design society better than the prog progressives could because we're smart and we're righteous and, and all that. And that assumption leaves out the fact that there are more people in our system who want the left to have that power than want the right to have that power. And the greatest check on far worse aggression from the left are these formal liberal structures that make that kind of thing difficult. And if conservatives give up defending that stuff, 
They're surrendering, you know, it's like they're giving the car keys to the other side. The idea that somehow if we just say originalism is BS and constitution is whatever judges want it to mean, you don't think that's a better, that's a bigger windfall for the left than the right? I mean, I just, it's, it's bizarre to me, the lack of political context um, and games in, and, and, and game theory that goes on in some of these arguments. They just assume like the near enemy is the one to defeat and then they will just ride roughshod over a liberal culture and, 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 and electoral majorities that disagree with them. I, I, it's, it, I can't get my head around it. Yeah, there are a couple things that should be said about this. The first is that I think we need to do a better job of explaining to the next generation on the right, that part of our patrimony, the American conservative patrimony, and our conservatism is different than 12th century French conservatism. It's different than 15th century Chinese conservatism. Conservatism is based on a land, its people, and its history, and what makes that uh, regime work. A big part of our patrimony is uh, understanding of natural rights, uh, liberty, an understanding of a constitutional system that distributes power both among branches and uh, vertically, uh, that believes in civil society, uh, the lessons of Tocqueville, and all, like the lessons that came out of that. So all of those kinds of things have to be part of the conversation of like what American conservatism is, and I think too much of the new conversation elides all of that. I'm happy to have a conversation about what American conservatism is, but if you want to ignore that we purposely separate branches and distribute power and that people want to have a Tocquevillian, uh, highly local, non-governmental sector, and that we have a democratic Republican form of government because we believe in small-scale democracy, if you actually think that conservatism means uh, accumulating power in the federal government and having you and your friends in charge and then orienting everybody around your vision of the common good, because you know what the common good is in treating people like subjects. I guess that's a type of conservatism. You'd have to do a whole lot to convince me that that's American conservatism. So we need to think about like these arrangements of government. But the second part that you raised here is just the straight up politics, like the public opinion. And I went back and looked at this because I think there's lots of wish casting among um, some folks on the right now. So this is from the Henry Olson survey that uh, he did not all that long ago of Trump voters. 84% of Trump voters think the federal government is too big. Only 2% of them think uh, the federal government is too small. Uh, 93% say that they believe that the people, not the government, creates wealth. 69% disagree that the government has a role in helping people get ahead. Um, 90% think the U.S. is the greatest and we're losing the ideas that made us great. So even among Trump voters, they are much more traditional in the Republican sense that you and I are familiar with than this kind of big state populist nationalist um, vision that some people are pushing. So I feel more comfortable being in the center of the tradition of American conservatism and the public opinion on the right uh, than I think like, I shouldn't feel under assault about this. I'm quite comfortable with that. So if people want to say that we need a big federal government and all these new programs. Um, they can do that, but they need a whole lot more to convince me that that's conservative. Does that help? Yeah, I mean, no, that helps. I mean, I just, you know, we're just sort of in violent agreement on this. I mean, my my point is, is that, like, it it doesn't make it conservative because your motives are conservative. 
right? If, if, yes. If you're, if you're siding with uh, labor unions, um, which might be the right thing to do. I mean, like, there's, like one of the things that conservatives need to understand is that conservative is not synonymous with always correct. <laughs> conservatives sometimes can be wrong in a specific situation with a specific application of conservative principles that doesn't fit and all that. I mean, like, conservative doesn't mean always right. But if you're going to make the case that siding with labor unions over Amazon is the conservative thing to do, citing your motives can't be the only explanation. It, 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 maybe it's necessary, but it's not sufficient, is my point. And um, if your argument is, is that the, the sort of uh, the, the idea that you know, like, I mean, I, and I made this point with Orrin Cass, I've made it with a lot of people. Um, if you read the uses of knowledge in society, you know, the, the, the Hayek essay on the knowledge problem, um, which you've, you've written some stuff on this, uh, I love national it. Affairs, um, uh, the, the argument there had almost nothing to do with right versus left in the sense of, um, you know, uh, one side's right and one side's wrong or any of that kind of thing. It was about planning, the planning nature of planning, the nature of planning and the epistemic limits of planning. And that the problem that with planning from far away, um, in, 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 in a centralized government is that you just cannot have enough information to make decisions better than people close to the ground or never mind all of the decisions and variables that are hidden, but there in prices. You know, a price of bread at a supermarket has stuff to do with labor strife in Indonesia, weather in Canada. I mean, there's a gazillion friggin' factors that go into the price of bread, and you can't know them all. And the market figures these things out, you know, and weighs all these kinds of things. And so prices are a signal, right? I mean, this is, this, this is sort of a kayak 101 in a lot of ways. Anyway, my only point is, is that there are a bunch of people who used to believe this, who used to be persuaded by this. And there's some who like, I've heard, I got pushed back from some people say, yeah, but artificial intelligence and supercomputers changes that. Okay, well, that's an interesting argument. Let's talk about that sometime. But in the meantime, um, there are people who used to believe this and now they've subtly changed the argument to planning was bad when the other team did it. But our motives are good. And the results that we want are good. And, um, and so therefore, we can do planning and not be subject to all of these laws of unintended consequences, all of these things that emerge from Hayek like thunderbolts out of Zeus's forehead. Um, and, uh, and I just don't get it. I mean, I, like, I, 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 I need to know how you got there that all of a sudden because you know, first of all, you've, discre you, you've discounted the fact that Democrats and liberals have said for 100 years that they're pro-worker, they like workers, they're doing what they're doing to help workers. You somehow seem to think that they didn't mean that or they were stupid. And now you, after five minutes of looking at some polling data um, and talking to some 20-somethings about this in your office who run social media accounts, you're going to tell me that you can do pro-worker economic policy and it'll work out really well because you're sincere and you don't, and you're, and you're wise in ways planners on the other side aren't. And I, I, you know, 
I don't get it. I, I, I mean, I get it from liberals who never read Hayek or discounted Hayek. I don't get it from conservatives who, who know these arguments when marshalling them leftward and then just set them aside when, when talking about how they're going to do public policy. Well, there is this just general problem of uh, people's governing principles have a tendency to disappear once they get power. Um, they want to limit other people's ability to do things, and then they think the world changes once they actually have the levers of power, and uh, they think that they and their friends can make the world go right. So part of this is natural, but another part of it, I just think, is I appreciate the new rights, and I always want to encourage them while at the same time being the boomer and saying, hey, have you thought about so-and-so, is that they are doing a very good job of saying, America has lost community. How do we get that back? Or America isn't caring about uh, manufacturing workers anymore. How do we get that back? Or America has gone sideways on some of these cultural issues. How do we get that back? And then they have some of these proposals with which you and I disagree. I want to engage with them in a conversation about, okay, um, just because I believe in law and order doesn't mean I believe in a police state. There are certain rules over lessons, history that teach us you need a fourth amendment, you need due process and so on. Or I believe in strong families, but that doesn't mean I believe in socialism. I don't believe you give everybody a house and a car and free money just in the name of, um, of strong families. So I'm happy that the new right is pushing us old fogies to think about the ends of government. I would encourage them to think more about these means that you and I are talking about. Why is planning wrong? Why do we distribute power? Why do we trust non-governmental bodies? Why does pluralism in America lead to different things than a country where everyone has the exact same heritage? There's something about our tradition and all these procedures, and the new right hates the term procedures, governing procedures or governing processes that allow America to succeed, that I think this new generation, they're just fed up with losing, and they don't want to talk about process. They want to talk about helping the family and uh, strong communities and jobs and the things that you and I care about, which we think lead to long-term outcomes that are good, like capitalism and uh, distributed power and robust voluntary associations. Sometimes I feel like they wave that away, like, yeah, 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 that didn't lead us where we need to go. We just need a strong state to fix things. Yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, I guess we're, we're going to disagree on this one a bit. You're just far too generous uh you think so yeah i mean i i I, look i'm sure you can point to individual people making individual arguments at individual moments in time where what you said is absolutely correct and defensible um bigger picture i see this much more as one group of wannabe elites trying to displace another elite by using nearest weapon to hand arguments that are not in fact true and the idea that somehow conservatives haven't been talking about a loss of community prior to 2015 or 2016, putting aside the question that Donald Trump had nothing of interest or importance to say about any of these things. Amen. And a lot of these people latched on to him out of uh, expediency and power worship. And the idea that they could sort of hitch a ride to greater prominence, um, claiming that somehow Donald Trump has something to do with these ideas that they care about is utter nonsense to me. But moreover, like uh, the idea that conservatives haven't been talking about how to help with, I mean, I, I mean smart conservatives, but you know, the, the smart conservatives I'm talking about are precisely the conservatives that a lot of these people want to 
throw overboard, you know, whether it's National Review or the Dispatch or AEI, you know, these places I have, you know, really strong commitments to. Um, uh, and so I get a little personal. I feel it a little personally sometimes. But like AEI has been working on civil society and community stuff since Robert Nisbet was a guest scholar there. Um, and Burger you know, and Newhouse. Has, I'm sorry? <laughs> Burger and Newhouse. Like, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, yes, this go yes, for 40, 50, 60 years, AEI has been on the community scene. So yeah, they're not newcomers. Yeah. Robert Woodson was doing, I mean, it just you can go down the list and like and sympathy, you know, Ramesh was talking about increasing child tax credits for years about all of this kind of stuff. And like, um, and and then there's the premise that these people are tired of 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 not winning. I, I like, first of all, this is the straw man that I I believe. That has been created to just to give people permission structure to forgive Donald Trump and his in the worst members of his coterie a free pass to do all sorts of terrible things. Where is this like like I, I don't I don't need to make the case about how it's not true that we always that conservatives always lost. I would just point out that it should be danger. It it, it should be uh, problematic for the theory that conservatives always lose that liberals think they always lose, right? I mean, there's something else is going on when the other side thinks conservatives are always winning. Um, and maybe it has to do with other cultural and psychological factors other than actual political losses. And then finally, there's this problem of, they, it, it's a very Nietzschean move of, of, of taking virtues and turning them into vices. They're now taking the argument, the, the things that conservatives won on not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, things that conservatives won on and saying that these were not, in fact, victories. So like the 30-year effort by the Federalist Society and other conservatives to put uh, originalist jurisprudence at the center of conservatism and the center of our courts um, and our battles over the courts, they now say, well, that doesn't, you know, that's not a victory. That was actually a mistake. We should have had the same approach that liberals had and, and have our own version of the living constitution that supports everything that we want to do. Um, you know, they haven't, they haven't taken on gun culture, you know, and the, the gun victories, but you know, you know, that's coming. Um, um, and you can go down, you know, and you look at the other victories, which was like deregulation and, uh, expanded markets and expanded trade and all these kinds of, and they, they say, no, no, those weren't victories. Those were losses. And, uh, Individual people again could be sincere and 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 a mixture of of uninformed and decent and just not know a lot of the back history and all these kinds of things. But at a broad level, I just look a lot of this stuff and I just see it as a power, a cynical power play, um, combined with some self-serving narratives that a lot of these people tell themselves. And I don't mean that as an indictment of any one individual, but as the phenomenon in general. How much of this do you think, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate, but not totally, there's something here. Um, how much of this do you think that we should look at and half smile because what they are doing is pushing the Overton window, like opening up, they're pushing further to the right, which makes it more possible for people like you and me to win on the stuff that we want, just like the progressives have been doing this. Um, they say the most radical leftist things like Bernie Sanders is given credit for pushing his uh, party to the left or the democratic party to the left. Maybe these new right folks by talking so much about community. So for example, there's this new um, revived effort to say that not only 
Um, was it wrong to say that Roe versus Wade was uh, necessary? There's some people who are now saying that the Constitution bans abortion or should be understood to ban abortion because of you know, right to life issues. So how much of that do you think we should say, yeah, it's wrong, but we should quietly smile because they're pushing the discussion further to the right? Um, I, I think you got to be really, really prudential on that. I agree. Um, because I, I can come up with five examples off the top of my head that are very bad for us. And I could probably come up with three examples off the top of my head that are good for us. It, it depends. I mean, there's, there's a problem in our culture generally, you know, what I think it was David French who coined it, nut picking, where you take the worst examples of the other side and you show them up and say, see, this is what they're all like kind of thing. Um, if you have people out there saying that, you know, um, the Constitution uh, f- expressly forbids abortion in all 50 states and including in cases of rape and incest and that just for the sake of a hypothetical and that doctors who perform abortions um, should be put in jail. OK, and maybe even the moms, too. Right. The really extreme position. I can see why you might think that moves the Overton window towards more reasonable restrictions on abortion, and it might. But it also might elicit an antibody response from a lot of people, a sort of dialectical response that says, all right, well, all those people are crazy, and even if I'm going to like give you know, Andy from the Manhattan Institute a little credit on you know, when he's running for Congress about all this, I know because we, we, we want our politics to be sort of parliamentary system politics these days, um, that if I elect the reasonable guy, I'm also lending aid and comfort and, and, and numerical support to the crazy guy. Like Paul Gosar and, um, uh, and Steve King do not help conservatives seem reasonable on race relations in this country. They hurt. The guilt by association stuff hurts. And so I can see how on some issues, that's right. They're mostly cultural issues and they're also fraught. Um, but part of my objection is that on economic and legal questions, they're not moving right. They're moving left and they're just proclaiming it conservative to say that you're no longer believe that to say that you're not going to get me until the words really change in the language overall to agree that a right wing living constitution isn't moving leftward in the ways that matter. And you're not going to get me to say that picking winners and losers in industries that you like and subsidizing the hell out of them um, and deciding what the technologies of the future are is right wing because your motives are conservative and you have got conservative voters. That's moving leftward. And if we're going to just redefine everything, you know, the way the Biden administration defines infrastructure, fine, let's have that conversation of where, uh, let's have what Confucius called the rectification of the names happy to do that. But until that time, if you're becoming more statist, regardless of what your motivations are, you're moving leftward until you can make a rational argument about why you're not. And, um, uh, and so anyway, I, that's, I mean, I, I can think about it more, but that's sort of my response to it. Yeah. So I agree with that. So three points. Yes, we shouldn't allow people who are pushing left to claim that they're pushing right. Second, there is a danger in claiming you're moving the Overton window when actually what you're doing is making your side just seem more radical. And there were lots of people who thought that Donald Trump was going to 
energize us and push Overton window, but make the Republican Party stronger because he was fighting. But just this morning, Gallup released new data showing that the percentage of Americans identifying as Republicans is at its lowest level in a decade, um, like 39 or 40 percent. So we have to recognize that um, there are costs to some of these things that we're doing. And the last point I just want to make about this is, um, again, I want to encourage this new thinking on the right to an extent. I'm going to disagree with a lot of it, but I was once a 25-year-old who had all the answers and I hated it when people just patted me on the head and told me um, that I was wrong and and radical. So I I try to be as charitable on this as possible, even when I disagree. But what I would encourage uh, a lot of this new generation of folks to do is go run for office or go work for a state legislature or go um, run uh, work for a staffer on Capitol Hill or a mayor or whatever it is. See what it's like to try to get this language and these ideas actually enacted into law and see what it's like to go through the democratic process. At some point for these ideas to have legs, they need to be pressure tested in the real world of real policymaking. And maybe they turn out to be more robust than I think they are. Um, But at minimum, the people pushing them are going to learn a lot. At this point, a lot of this stuff is just conceptual. And until it engages in the Democratic-Republican process of uh, democratic deliberation and debate and accommodation and civility and negotiations, uh, I think we're just having some navel-gazing. So I want to kindly encourage a lot of this next generation that feel strongly about this. um, Don't just write about it. Go do some of it. I I think that's that's actually great advice. And it's it is one of the ironies of all these people denouncing uh, think tankers or tankies, as some of them call them, for not being part of the real world. And these are a lot of these people are 20 somethings or academics who are even less part of the real world than the think tankers are, but they traffic in these sort of straw men, you know, conceptions of these things. Anyway, uh, I could go on. I'll, you know, you're, you're easy to talk to and you, you take my abuse well. Um, <laughs> So I appreciate that greatly. Um, and uh, uh, we will have you back on. We've got to get your measurements for the gold jacket, um, but it's coming. And um, thanks, for, thanks for doing this. Uh, and thanks to you and thanks for the dispatch team. Uh, you guys have been great. Okay, thanks again. Uh, Andy's left the, uh, the building. And um, thanks again to Andy for coming on. He's a good sport. Uh, he could tell. Uh, he was going to get the brunt of my ranting um, the second he came on. And I, I apologize to the listeners who wanted to hear more from him than from me. Um, but, you know, it's just that kind of day. Maybe it's the after effects. I got my first shot yesterday um, of the vaccine. I got the Pfizer one, which, you know, I'm really psyched about because unlike the Moderna one, the Pfizer one uh, comes with really awesome uh, superpowers, uh, flight, telekinesis um you know and it's worth remembering that flight and telekinesis are actually related is that you're using the telekinesis on yourself to elevate yourself um i'm I'm getting some hints of heat vision but we don't know yet and meanwhile my friends who got the moderna one um uh they you know they're coping with the fact that their hands have been replaced by giant crab claws so you know it's you know different strokes for different folks and you know there's advantages to that too um but maybe it's making me a little weird i don't know i've been having some pretty vivid dreams um you know and waking up in some strange places so whatever uh but i thought it was an interesting conversation i mentioned at the top that i wanted to say something about i can't remember how i got to it but um um 
Mobutu Sese Seko. So a long time ago on this podcast, by which I mean maybe two weeks ago, I can't really remember. Um, I didn't have the full translation or the full uh, name. Um, and this goes back to an old running gag when I first took over, when I first started National Review Online, I talked about how I was going to make NRO the Mobutu Sese Seko Kuku Nabenga Wazabanga of the internet. And, um, and now that I'm in the dispatch, uh, that's sort of my goal here, which is one of the reasons why I want everybody um, to become subscribers. And so there are two things to say about that. First is the uh, there are a bunch of different arguments about how this should be translated. Um, uh, but one of my favorite definitions of Mubudu Sese Seko, um, the full name, is the all-powerful rooster who, because of his endurance and inflexible will to win, will go from conquest to conquest, leaving fire in his wake. Now, the funny thing about the rooster thing is that in some of the translations, rooster is translated as warrior, and sometimes it's translated as cock, which we don't need to um, expound upon. Um, but uh, if you guys, if everybody listening to this podcast became a um, Revenant subscriber, I mean, I'm sorry, a Dispatch subscriber, uh, we would be well on our way to becoming the Mubudu Sese Seiko of uh, new digital media companies. And the second thing I want to bring up about this is that uh, you now have a chance to find out without paying any money. We're running a 30-day trial where you have full access to everything we do, including the Wednesday G file um, and the, the, the various French press uh, products from David that are behind the paywall, as well as the fantastic stuff from Tom Jocelyn and others. Um, you get the full suite of newsletters that you can look at and decide whether or not you want to, um, after kicking the tires, uh, want to become a fully paid member of the community. Uh, it would be just awesome if, if you did that. And all you need to do is go to thedispatch.com slash free 30. That's thedispatch.com forward slash free f r e e and the number 30 the dispatch.com free 30 for a 30 day trial um, of full access to the dispatch please give it a whirl or just skip the process entirely and become a, a paid member now that would be even better but i understand if you want to you know because we were talking about proceduralism before maybe you you have to go through the process and i completely understand that and with that, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.